0: All right, our time in the Word tonight is, uh, of course, Bible question and answer, so it will revolve around the questions that you have turned in, so take your Bible and uh, make sure you can flip back and forth, because we'll need to do that. Uh, we won't be able to stay in one spot or one passage. Uh, but let's begin in 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, the question is from Second Peter 2 over near the right of your Bible, right near the end. Almost easier to find revelation and back up a few small letters. Second Peter chapter 2, here's the question. I'll read it while you're turning there. A scripture says those who accept Christ and return to living in sin would have been better off never finding the truth to begin with. Is Scripture implying that it would be better than to lose salvation? Or that there is great shame waiting for those uh, who go... Back to living in sin. Why would it be better for them to have never found hope? Well, you ask a very good question here, but uh, let's start with what the verse says. And it is Second Peter chapter two verse twenty-one. Uh, this is I'm, I'm almost certain the verse you're referring to because the wording is almost exactly the, the phraseology that you use. Second Peter two twenty-one. For it would be, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it. To turn from the holy commandment delivered to them, and the reason I wanted to read the verse for you and, and show you where it's located is because, as you can see, this verse occurs right at the end of Second Peter chapter two. And uh, if we had time to sort of walk all the way through Second Peter chapter two, it would become obvious that this entire chapter is focused on apostate, false teachers. Now, what is an apostate false teacher? Well, an apostate, a biblical definition of an apostate is someone who has been around the truth, been exposed to the truth, maybe even appears to have embraced the truth, but eventually walks away showing that he never really embraced the truth. Of course, the classic example of an apostate is Judas Iscariot, who was with the other disciples, seemed real, seemed genuine. He knew the truth. He heard everything Jesus had to say and rejected it. And walked away. That's an apostate. An apostate false teacher is someone who goes even further. That is, he hears the truth, he hangs around the truth, rejects the truth, and then begins to teach contrary to the truth, to teach things that undermine the truth. Well, 2 Peter 2 is about apostate false teachers. And there are many in our world today. We're not talking about just people in the cults, we're talking about people under the umbrella of Christianity who uh, would be in sort of the segment of Christianity that we would call liberal Christianity, that have been exposed to the truth, and they've come to the view, well, you know, that they're a Christian. They call themselves a Christian, uh, but, you know, they don't take all the stories in the Bible seriously because, uh, you know, you can't say that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. It obviously has some mistakes in it. There's some good stuff in it, et cetera. And then they end up teaching contrary to the truth. Uh, And it is difficult for some Christians if you're sort of only in this context, that is a Bible-believing church, a conservative church, uh, to realize that this is out there. But this is out there, beloved. In fact, uh, uh, I always uh, find it interesting when some of our Bible college students from Montana Bible College end up having an assignment from one of their professors where they need to go and respectfully interview uh, other pastors and ministers here in the Gallatin Valley of, of oftentimes maybe mainline churches, et cetera, and they go and they come back utterly shocked. I, can, they, I hear them say to me, Pastor Brian, you wouldn't believe what's out there. I mean, I interviewed this pastor. He didn't believe in Noah, you know, the whole story of, 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 of Noah and the ark. He didn't believe in Jonah and the big fish, and he didn't even believe all the New Testament was, was really, there's some errors in it, and you can only take the, the parts that are really gospel, and of course, it's his definition of what's gospel. It is out there. And so, uh, 2 Peter 2, the Holy Spirit, knowing what was in the first century and what would come down through the centuries, uh, issues a, I'm telling you, it is a blistering, a blistering rebuke of apostate false teachers. Uh, it's one of the darkest chapters in Scripture. In fact, I remember a few months ago, a couple years ago, whenever I was preaching through 2 Peter um, I, I don't remember how many weeks, six or seven weeks, but about the fifth week in, a lady in our congregation sent me an email and said, she was really nice about it, but said, I can't wait till we get out of 2 Peter 2. Would you hurry and get through the chapter? Move us into it? because it is so dark. It really is. Um, so all that to say this, uh, the way you've worded your question, Scripture says those who accept Christ and return to living in sin, etc. well, you've started with a sort of premise that really doesn't fit 2 Peter 2. Because 2 Peter 2 does not acknowledge that the people in view here accepted Christ. They are people who know the truth. They've been around the truth, but they've not really embraced the truth. And so don't notice that verse 21 says it would have, better, would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Peter doesn't use the term you use. You use the term accept or receive. He doesn't say it would have been better for them never to have received the way of righteousness, than having received it to turn from it. No, Peter's talking about those who know it, they've been exposed to it, they reject it, they walk away. So the rest of your question then about, well, is it saying, is Scripture implying that it would be better to lose your salvation? There's some great, No, all of that, you, you sort of go down a track because you start with the assumption that the verse that you sort of paraphrase is talking about true believers and in context, 2 Peter 2.21 is clearly not referring to true believers. All right? Uh, Next question says this. uh, Pastor Brian, will the body of Christ, the true church, experience the tribulation, or will we be raptured out? And, of course, this is uh, the whole issue of a person's eschatology. It's just a technical term for your, your view of end times. Uh, there are basically four views on the timing of the, we use the term rapture. It's not a bad term, by the way. You don't find it in Scripture, but in First Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. That phrase, caught up together, in Latin is raptura. Shall be raptura. It's where we get our English word rapture. So sometimes people say, oh, you can't find the word rapture in the Bible. There's no such thing as the rapture. It's not even found in the Bible. Well, 1 Thessalonians 4 clearly describes the rapture. There's absolutely no question about that. The only question is the timing of it. I mean, the person who says, well, the rapture's not even found in the Bible doesn't know the Bible. What they usually mean, the pre trib rapture, they don't agree with, is not found in the Bible. The rapture is in the Bible. It doesn't use the term. It uses the term, the great gathering together under Jesus in the air. But it's clearly a scriptural idea that we're going to be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds. We'll be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. It's clearly in Scripture. There's no debating. It's only the timing of it. So this question, the person is wondering, what is the timing? The four views, uh, four viable views, I should say, that they're, they're valid views, Uh, are pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and another view which is called pre-wrath, which doesn't so much time it in relation to the tribulation, the seven years, but actually times the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air with the seventh seal of Revelation 6. And so they don't try to place it before or mid or after, but sometime during the tribulation, but prior to the wrath of Christ being poured out on the earth. The assumption of that view is is that the wrath of Christ is not poured out early on, not until later, and so they call it pre-wrath, and they say the wrath of Christ will come late in the tribulation, and the true church must be raptured before that because, rightly so, the true church has promised deliverance from the wrath of Christ. So that's the pre-wrath view. The person is asking the question, uh, w- w- you know, when is it going to occur? Well, let me just say this. Obviously, if it were just clear-cut like the doctrine of the Trinity, then every Bible-believing Christian would believe it, right? I mean, if it were just clear as a bell, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-rath, every Christian would believe it. But the fact that every Christian doesn't believe the same view on the timing of the rapture should give us uh, consideration to humility. To say, okay, I'm going to wrestle through this issue because God has spoken on it, but I'm not going to hold this with the same dogmatism that I hold the doctrine of the Trinity, or the deity of Christ, or the virgin birth, okay? So with all that as background, just let me say this. I personally believe the strongest evidence for the timing of the great gathering unto Jesus in the air is pre-tribulational. And the reason I believe that is because of seven reasons. I'll just bullet point them. I'm not going to develop them. First of all, the distinction between the church and Israel. It's clear in Scripture. God has... Two programs, if you will, one for Israel uh, and one for the church. Uh, Paul says, clearly as can be said in Romans 9, 10, 11, God is not done with Israel. God is going to fulfill his promises to Israel. The church is not the new Israel. It's not the true Israel. It's not spiritual Israel. The church is the church, the body of Christ. Israel is Israel. Secondly, the absence of the church in Revelation 6 through 18 it argues for a pre-tribulation rapture because if that book is written and it is to churches and if the church is going to be immersed in the tribulation, it's difficult to conceive of why the church would never be mentioned in Revelation 6 through 18. Thirdly, you have some direct statements of Scripture which say, like 1 Thessalonians one ten five nine, Revelation 3.10, which promise that the church will be, uh, will never experience the wrath of Christ because he took... Uh, the wrath of God, Christ did in our place. So then you have to determine when does the wrath of Christ or the wrath of God begin in relation to the tribulation. And I think the evidence is that it begins with the breaking of the first seal, which is right at the beginning. Uh, Third or fourthly, you have the imminency of Christ's return. In other words, you have statements in the New Testament that talk about the importance of being ready because Jesus can come back at any moment. Now hear me when I say this and understand. That if the great gathering together under Jesus in the air is not pre-tribulational, okay? any of the other views, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, okay? if it's one of those three views, and it could be, but if it is, you cannot hold to the doctrine of imminence. You can't. Because certain things have to happen before Jesus can descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That cannot happen at any moment. You cannot say Jesus could come back at any moment. You cannot hold to imminence. And the only writer, by the way, who I've ever heard... Admit this and be consistent with it is a man by the name of Marv Rosenthal. He used to be the executive director of Friends of Israel ministry, and then he started a new ministry called Zion's Hope down in Florida. And he's a good Bible scholar. I like Marv's uh, stuff. I read him, etc. I don't agree with him on this view. But he wrote a little book. I saw it one time in a bookstore uh, basically saying this. I disagree with the book, but it's at least consistent. He says there is no statement in the New Testament supporting imminency. Well, he's consistent with his view because he's pre-wrath, by the way. So he's saying, listen, there's nothing in the Bible that says we need to be ready because Christ can come back at any moment because he can't come back at any moment. It's got to be at least mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, etc. So the imminency of Christ's return, statements in the Bible that tell us we need to be ready, Christ can come back, argue for a pre-trib rapture. Uh, Fifthly, uh, Paul's teaching in 2 Thessalonians 2 about why the Thessalonians were not in the day of the Lord's wrath. It's a very complicated passage, but it's a strong one, in my view, on the uh, support for a pre-trib rapture. Uh, Sixthly, you have statements in the Bible that specifically say that the tribulation is for Israel. Deuteronomy 4.30, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, uh, say that it is a time of Jacob's trouble. What's another name for Jacob? Israel. And then you have the presence of the glorified church in Revelation 4 and 5 as depicted by the 24 elders. Again, if we had time, we could go and show the support that those 24 elders are representative of the church. Well, if, if that is the church in Revelation 4 and 5, the tribulation doesn't start until chapter 6 until chapter 6. So you have the church, completed, glorified, raptured church in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, all completed before Revelation 6. When the day of the Lord's wrath begins, so for those reasons, I hold to a pre-trib rapture. But again, I don't hold to it with a, a view that my friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ who are—and I have some on all the whole spectrum, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, etc.—that you know, I would never say, "Oh, they're heretics. They're off the." Wall, because it's not an easy issue to wrestle through. And as I said, if it were easy, we'd all have the same view in the body of Christ, and we don't. All right. Next question says this. Um, uh, is it fair to say that Jesus was testing John the Baptist's faith? Now, this is going back to, you remember, John ends up in prison. This is Matthew 11. In fact, go to Matthew 11, because this is what it's based on, this question. Matthew 11, and it's verse 2. Uh, where John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the coming one or do we look for another? See, John's confused at this point, as I mentioned this morning. It's like things aren't working out the way he thought. Uh, he said, the Messiah's coming. If you don't repent, you're going to be judged. Not everyone was repenting not, and not everyone was being judged. What's going on here? Furthermore, he's in prison. It just didn't look like how John thought it was going to look. And so he's confused. And he sends these two disciples to say, Now, I thought you were the Messiah. Are you the one, or should we look for someone else? So the question here, is it fair to say that Jesus was testing John the Baptist's faith? I think John, like most of us, had expectations that Jesus would deliver him out of his hard place. Jesus says in his word about not being offended in him, and that's verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended of me. Or you could paraphrase that. Blessed is one who doesn't get upset with the way I do things. That's what Jesus was saying. Uh, And so here the question is, Jesus says in his word about not being offended at him, apparently it was God's will for John to die in prison. Yes, you're right. Uh, I need to make sure I believe that God has ultimate control, no matter how bad it looks. I know that our faith is more precious to the Lord than gold. So the question was Jesus testing john's faith and i would say no i don't think so i think john's perception is what tested his faith his and i'm not being critical of him because anybody would have been where john was but his assumptions of what things were going to look like is what tested his faith And when it didn't look like that, he got confused. See, he thought he knew how it was going to look. He's preparing the way for the Messiah, and Jesus is going to come, and those that accept him are going to be in the kingdom. Those that don't are going to be judged, sent away to burning like chaff in the fire, and that's not what was happening. Because John didn't understand that all of that wasn't going to happen in the first coming. It was going to have to take a second coming. And so it wasn't so much that Jesus was testing John's faith, but it was John's understanding or lack of understanding, lack of clarity that tested his faith. That's what created the dilemma in his heart. And that's why when Jesus answers the question here, he says to these two disciples, You go back and tell John this. Go tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, these are all things that Hebrew Scripture said the Messiah would do. So go tell John I'm doing exactly what Hebrew Scripture said the Messiah would do. He just forgot about those parts. He just remembered the parts that talked about kingdom, judgment, and all that. That wasn't happening. John was confused. So in saying that, I'm not being critical of John because everyone in this room have had assumptions, expectations, and it didn't go that way, and then we're confused. Like Lord, hold it. You, you know, I, I met with a, a dear lady recently who uh, indicated that she felt that the Lord. Uh, had given her a promise when one of her children was young and it's not working out that way and she's devastated and she said to me, why isn't the Lord keeping his promise? And my question was, as gently as I could, where in the word did the Lord give you that promise? Well, he didn't give it to me in the word. He just said it to me. I said, that's really dangerous. So you think you heard the Lord give you a promise. That's your expectation. It's not working out that way. Now you're blaming God for a promise I don't think he gave you. So that's what was going on with John here is that he, he, um, he, had some, he had a paradigm and Jesus didn't fit it. And every one of us in this room have had that happen to us at one time or another. We have a view, a perspective, and then the Lord doesn't fit what we think. And it's confusing. So that's what was going on here. All right, next question says this. It's from a very perceptive little youngster. I wish you could see the writing here. Took me to task on this, and this little guy is right. I'm wrong. He said, if the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, what about the resurrection? So, I stand corrected, all right? Uh, Now, in defense, I think I used the phrase, the only... Miracle of Jesus in his earthly ministry. So I was talking about his ministry during his ministry, not after his death. But I I concede I was wrong. You're right. And uh, if the little guys here tonight come up afterwards, i give you a quarter, okay? You are right. All right. Now, next question says this. Uh, Let's turn to Romans 10. Romans chapter 10. Uh, Question is this, what are good ways to pray for the people of the Gallatin Valley? You know, when I got this question, I started thinking in my mind through different prayers in the Bible, of course... My mind went to Daniel 9, that incredible prayer that Daniel offered, and some prayers from Nehemiah and Solomon and the dedication of the temple. My mind went on into the New Testament, Paul's prayer, and Ephesians and Philippians, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more, and Colossians, I pray you walk worthy. And as I just was working through this, it just hit me, not necessarily as a new thought, but hit me again that it's interesting that almost all the prayers in the New Testament, yea, in all the Bible, are for believers, Almost all. Spiritual growth, uh, walking worthy, all of that. Uh, So what do we pray for people of the Gallatin Valley? I'm assuming you just mean people in general. Well, I think we would acknowledge, not in a judgmental way, but in general, people of the Gallatin Valley don't know the Lord. I mean, right? That's not a judgmental statement because Jesus said, you know, wide is the gate, broad is the way to destruction, and many go down. So it's not surprising that most people in our society, most people in the world are lost. So what do we pray? Well, as I thought through that, the the, the verse that came to my mind was Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That's what we pray for people of the Galatine Valley. God, whatever you need to do, bring into their lives, whatever circumstances, bring people into their lives. That will be an impact. Whatever you need to do, Lord, may you save these people. That's an appropriate prayer. That's a biblical prayer. And as I said, you won't find a lot of prayers in the Bible. I'm not saying there aren't some exceptions, and this is not the only exception. You won't find a lot for unbelievers Uh, other than this kind of prayer. uh, Most of the prayers in the Bible that are recorded are for believers, but this is a great prayer to pray for people here in the Gallatin Valley. God, my heart's desire, my prayer to you for the people in our valley is that they may be saved. All right, next question says this. Uh, Let's turn over to Hebrews 13. It's not specifically on Hebrews 13, but it'll help us uh, answer it. Hebrews 13. It says this, when reading the Old Testament, how do I, as a New Testament believer, a member of the church, the body of Christ, take beautiful verses or passages like jeremiah 33 3 zephaniah 3 17 jeremiah 31 3 in case you don't know those verses it'd be similar to like jeremiah 29 11 which is a far more known verse i know the thoughts that i have towards you says the lord plans for good to bless you etc in context that's uh restoration from babylonian captivity etc uh, but this person's asking a very valid question of in hermeneutics interpretation what do we do we're, we're under the new covenant not under the old but we also recognize Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 Romans 15 that the old testament is for our learning so it's not that we disregard it throw it out but we also know that we can't claim every promise in it you can't claim the promise that says the many promises that say you know if you obey me uh, I'll always give you rain for your crops. I know some Christian ranchers and farmers in our church that would love to claim that promise. Always get rain every time I need it for my crops. It doesn't happen. It doesn't matter how godly you are. It doesn't happen. Uh, so this is a really good question. Contextually, this, the question continues, uh, he is speaking to Israel. Can these great expressions of God's love for his people also be applied to the church? And I would say this, yes, the way you worded the question. In other words, if a person has that understanding, that these are direct, specific promises to Israel, but they are, broader than that, great expressions of God's love for his people so they can be applied to the church, just as long as you don't try to exp- uh, push them maybe with the same specificity that it would have been for the people of Israel. And let me show you an example why I say yes, that we can take the In Hebrews 13... Verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Now, he's writing to people under the new covenant. In fact, that's one of his main points. The writer of Hebrews labors in this book to say we're under the new covenant, not the old. So he's writing to us, believers under the new covenant, and he says, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Now he says, the Lord has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know where that comes from? It's quoted from Genesis 28, 15, Deuteronomy 31, 6, and 8, Joshua 1, 5, and 1 Chronicles 28, 20. So the writer of Hebrews takes Old Testament promises, but I like your wording. It's an Old Testament promise related to the character of God, his care for his people, his love for his people. It's not a specific promise, if you you love me, if you follow me, I will always keep the locusts off your crops. I will always add years to your life. I will always give you rain. It's not those kinds of promises. They are broader promises about the character of God and, and the way he relates to his people. So I'm often asked, all the time, can we as a Christian claim, or, or, or can, can Jeremiah 29, 11 be applied to the church? And my answer is yes, if you understand it the way this question is worded, that God's heart for his people is our good. But be careful, don't build a paradigm like John the Baptist that you think you know what is good, and then when it doesn't go the way you think is good, now you think God hasn't kept his promise. So if you, if you take Scripture with the, with the understanding that the old covenant was for the Jewish people, but there are statements broader, like um, this morning I quoted uh, the famous 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Who's going to say, well, the 23rd Psalm doesn't apply to the church today? It's ridiculous. It applies because it's about the character of God and his care for his people. But if you push the promises too far, you get into too many of the specific details of promises, especially promises related to land, finance, and these are promises God gave Israel. Uh, Prosperity, you're going to get in trouble. Uh, so, in answer to your question, especially the way you worded it, can these great expressions of God's love for his people be applied to the true church, uh, to the church? Absolutely. As long as long It's what the writer of Hebrews does. Just as long as you're careful with your hermeneutics to not grab a promise out of the Old Testament that has specific application only to Israel in the land and try to apply it, apply it to your life today. That's where you, you get into trouble. Uh, Next question says this, Pastor Brian, is there any way Darwin's theory of evolution can be reconciled with the teachings of the Bible? And the answer is no, Uh, no, without hesitation, absolutely not. Uh, And in fact, some of you may remember this, uh, one of the messages over the past few years that Mark Amonru did on creation, he pointed out in an excellent way how that the Genesis account of creation not only... Uh, not only sets forth what God did, anticipating anticipating the fundamental tenets of evolution, Genesis 1 refutes them in advance. For example, one of them, one of the fundamental tenets of evolution, as you know, is that a creature can have have, uh, offspring not according to its kind. To refute that, God states, and not only states, he repeats And and as Mark noted there, the repetition is the key in the Genesis 1 passage. God repeats several times that it's only according to its kind. According to its kind. According to its kind. So we don't miss the message. It's fascinating how Scripture does this. I mentioned this in Mark a few weeks ago that the Holy Spirit anticipating what was going to be done with Mary in Christendom, anticipating the, the, the heretical errors about Mary, made sure that every gospel writer says something about Mary's children, that she had children. And so Scripture not only is written for the time in which it was written, but because it's written by the Holy Spirit, it's written also uh, that it transcends time and sometimes even anticipates error that will come down the pike and refutes that error. And that's what Genesis 1 does. So Genesis 1 is not just some, you know, quasi-blase presentation of creation. It is a treatise against Darwinian evolution. You cannot reconcile the two together. Absolutely not. All right, next question says this. Uh, let's turn to uh, which passage? First Peter 3. Let's turn to First Peter 3. And then I'll read you a statement from Ephesians because these are the two passages that come to bear. Here's the question, and I get this probably about every six months in Q&A. Did Jesus go to hell after he died? The answer is unequivocally no. He did not go to hell. Uh, That view that he did, now you say, hold it, that's in creeds. Yeah, I know it's in creeds and it's in doctrinal statements, but they're not scripture. Jesus didn't go to hell. Uh, That's based on a Misinterpretation of two passages, basically. The one is, and I'll read it to you: Ephesians four ten, which is talking about the incarnation. Please hear that. It's talking about the incarnation, and it says, "Now this he ascended. What does that mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth." And many take that lower parts of the earth that he went to hell, when in fact that the the, the teaching of Ephesians 4 is that Jesus ascended after he had come to the lower parts, namely the earth. He came in the incarnation. That genitive could rightly be translated, he first descended into the lower parts, namely the earth. So he descended in the incarnation and then he ascended back on high, etc. Based on that passage and 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, which talks about Jesus suffering once for sins. Now, please notice that. That's key to what I'm going to say in a minute. He suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So here, Peter is contrasting Jesus' death in the flesh, but him being alive in the Spirit, small s. It should be small s, and most English translations do. By which he went and preached to the spirits in prison now a couple very salient facts first of all the term spirits when used in the new testament without further definition or modifying adjectives always refers to angels or demons not human spirits so the spirits referred to in this verse are not spirits of men they are spirit beings and from what peter tells us later they are demonic spirits because he connects it with genesis 6 Interestingly, the word preach here in this verse is not the verb for preaching the gospel. Jesus did not go to hell and preach the gospel. The word means it's not Uan Galizamai to preach the gospel. This word means to make an announcement or make a proclamation. Well, Jesus went and made a proclamation to spirits in prison. What spirits? Verse 20 who formerly were disobedient when the once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared? That pushes us right back to Genesis six, where spirit beings, demons, took on human form, cohabited with women in, in an attempt to destroy the messianic line, and in, in a judgment on them, they were cast to the abyss or the prison, and Jesus, between his death and resurrection, as he left the Father and went back before he went into his body to be resurrected, went to the abyss, not hell. He went to the abyss, the spirits in prison, and proclaimed victory over them. But it's based on those two passages that, that uh, this view has, has come about that Jesus went to hell after he died. He did not go to hell. He said himself, when he died, his very last statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm coming to you, not going to hell. And furthermore, and this is the clincher for me, furthermore, Jesus' second to the last statement on the cross, his sixth statement on the cross, was, It is finished. And that Greek word, one word in Greek, could be translated, Paid in full. So he paid for sin on the cross, not in hell. And this is where a lot of people go with this idea that Jesus went to hell for a while and paid for our sins. No, Peter just says here, he suffered once for sins, not twice, not on the cross and then in hell, once on the cross. And he paid it all. It is finished. You know, the the idea that Jesus went to hell to pay for our sins, then to be consistent, why not just have him die of suffocation, then go to hell? Or die of, of drowning, and then... No, because he didn't pay for our sins in hell. He paid for our sins on the cross. So, short answer to your question, did Jesus go to hell after he died? No, he did not go to hell. He went to the Father. And he paid our sin on the cross, not in hell. All right, next question. Revelation chapter, well, it's on 2 and 3, so turn to Revelation 2. It says this. Uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus addresses the seven churches, um, he has some very harsh words for many of them. Indeed, he does. 2-5, I will remove your lampstand. 3-3, three, three, I will come against you. Three sixteen, I will spit you out of my mouth. There are others as well. He addresses them as churches. A commentary I read said that in these instances, the people were not true believers. My question is, if they were not believers, why would Christ address them as a church? If they are believers, it seems to me as though Christ is telling them they need to change so as not to lose their salvation. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, I I hear what you're saying, and I agree that that it is very easy for commentators to pass off a lot of the statements in Revelation 2 and 3 as applying only to unbelievers. This is often done with Revelation 3, where Jesus says to the church at uh, Laodicea, you know, uh, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, and many people assume, well, those are all unbelievers. That's a very common view. I don't hold it because you're right. He addresses churches. However, we all know, just like in church today, it was the same in the first century, uh, all people who are involved in the church are not believers. So it's really a mixed bag. And in fact, in chapter 2, verse 20, when Jesus addresses the church in Thyatira, he says this, he says, he says some good works, verse 19. I know your works love, service, faith, your patience, and it is for your works the last or more than the first. So there he's clearly referring to believers. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So right here, you have back-to-back Jesus addressing true believers, verse 19, and this Jezebel, who to use that term, obviously the Jezebel of the Old Testament was not a child of God. So here, there's this Jezebel in the church that the church was allowing this influence. So uh, in answer to your question, uh, there were clearly true believers in all of these churches. Um, And there, because Jesus talks about that, but there was also a mixture, and sometimes the true believers weren't doing what they should have done, and Jesus calls them to repentance, but sometimes the true believers were allowing unbelievers to do what should not be done in the church, and Jesus addresses either the believers, what they should have been doing about it, or the unbelievers. So all that says, not a simple question to answer. You can't just say, oh, it's written all to believers, or all to unbelievers, because Jesus is clearly picking his way through the issues in each of those churches. and You have to take them one at a time. Uh, but I would, I would clearly not embrace your view that you say that Christ is telling them they need to repent so as not to lose their salvation. That, I don't think that can be supported or found anywhere in these, in these uh, two chapters. But you are right that we need to be careful not to just immediately pass everything off as applying to unbelievers. Our next question says this. Uh, what is the contemplative prayer movement, and what should we know about it? You tell me, and we'll both know. I don't have any idea. Sorry. I, I read this, and I thought, I, you know, it's impossible to keep up with all the movements that go on. I, I hadn't heard of this one, so if someone knows, please inform me afterwards. Uh, next question says this, Ephesians 3.10. Let's turn to there, Ephesians 3.10. says um, this. The verse says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And the question is, how is it that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places? Well, first of all, understand that rulers and authorities is a reference to spirit beings, So the verse is saying, somehow through the church, God's manifold wisdom is made known to angels. Let's just say it that way. How? How? Well, we know the answer because Paul has just said it in chapter 2. The church, composed of redeemed believers, is an example of God's wisdom to, first of all, give life to dead sinners. That's Ephesians 2 1 through 10. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, he's made alive. That's not something that angels can experience. Demons can't experience that. So this is a a display of God's wisdom for angels to see how God can redeem human beings and give them life. But secondly, the church is composed of redeemed believers is an example of God's wisdom to bring unity of believers who otherwise would absolutely hate each other. And that's verses 11 through 19, where Paul talks about in the church, Jew and Gentile are one, and the middle wall of partition is broken down. So if I want to use an example from our culture, go back to where I grew up in the South, the gospel is able to break down the barriers of hatred that are immense in the South between black and white. Both who love Christ can come together in the body of Christ. And that is the wisdom of God to be able to accomplish something like that. So that's how, that's how God's wisdom is shown to the angels in salvation, both in giving new life, and in bringing unity to those who otherwise could never have unity. All right, final question is John 11. Uh, You're familiar with it. John 11 is the chapter where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And before he did, John tells us what Jesus did in verse 35, where just two words in our English translations, Jesus wept. And the question that is asked, why does Jesus weep in John 11:35? 35? And I'm assuming the, the question is being asked because, well, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, so why cry? And uh, the answer, I think, to that question is because Jesus was an example of Romans 12, 15, which says, weep with those who weep. Jesus didn't say, what are you doing crying? I'm going to raise him from the dead. Would you dry your tears? That's not the way you counsel someone. You don't say, hey, listen, oh, you lost your child? God is sovereign. He's good. You know, buck up. It's not the way you, you, you weep with those who weep. Even though all those things are true, God is sovereign. And, and in this case, Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is why the prophet said he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He entered into the hurts of other people. He was a tremendous example of that. And here, as he beheld the pain, the anguish caused by sin and death and Satan, he wept. Not crocodile tears. Genuine weeping, seeing this before he turned it around. So a tremendous example to us, beloved of weeping with those who weep, even though even though maybe we know some things as in this case Jesus knew what he's going to do that maybe could cause us to not intentionally but unintentionally be you know, unemotional or or harsh uh, guard that. Weep with those who weep. And then whatever it's sharing spiritual truth or in this case be nice to be able to do what Jesus did, just raise the dead, but, but then take the next step, whatever that is. But weep with those who weep. All right, great questions. Let's have prayer, and we'll close with a song and call it a night. Father, thank you for our time in the Word this evening. Some really uh, great, insightful questions. And as we close, thinking about the Lord Jesus and his example to us of weeping with those who weep, even knowing what he was going to do, May we learn from his example and emulate his, his, his character so that we would also enter into the hurts of others and be like the Lord Jesus. That's our desire. We often say that. We want to be like Jesus. May we be like him in this way as well. We pray these things in his wonderful name, matchless name. Amen. Amen.